can turn in your Bibles or swipe in your devices over to Hebrews chapter 7 and tab down to verse 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 19 this morning. I basically used the same title as last week, The History and the Mystery of Mechizedek. And in one sense, it's part two, although we are looking at a, a set of new verses and if you missed last week's teaching, uh, if I can be as so bold and humble to say, I'd love to invite you to check out our Facebook page or our live stream or our podcast, and you can go back and, and watch or listen to that message. I, I do believe it'll help just give some great background as to what we'll continue to talk about here. But I'll do a little bit of rewind, a little bit of review as well, okay? Hebrews chapter 7, if you're there with me, as we do, we like to stand in honor of God and His Word, so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. It's a lot of verses, so uh, I'll just read from verses 4 through 10. It'll help set our, you know, the beginning of our track, and then we'll just unpack the rest of the verses as we get to them. The writer says, remember, he, he's talking about Melchizedek, this enigma, this interesting, curious figure in the Old Testament. And so he says, now consider how great this man was. He's talking about Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe of his spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood, well, they have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, again, God's Mosaic law. That is from their brethren, that's who the people are, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. And here's a contrast. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, not from the line of Aaron, not from the Levites, well, he received tithes from Abraham. And he blessed Abraham. He blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. And he says here, mortal men receive tithes, but there, the, the idea is that in that case, he received them, of whom it's witnessed that he lives. And, and there's this kind of obscure argument or presentation. He says, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right, we're going to pause there, and we'll go through these verses, and we'll go through the remaining up to verse 19 as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for the day and keeping us safe from the storm. Lord, once again, we trust that just Okinawa needed the rain, the farmers needed the rain, and Lord, your word tells us that it's a, a reminder of your grace of how you provide rain, uh, both for the the godly and the ungodly, Lord. You're so good. Father, we want to just pray outside of our four walls. We lift up our family and friends who are traveling, who are deployed. Lord, for the Marhines who are still waiting for uh, tickets to get back after their bout with COVID, bless them, we pray. Lord, we pray for the Seacrest family as Blake's mom has uh, passed and now even Rebecca's dad isn't doing well. And so, Father, we pray, pray for comfort and encouragement for them. And Lord, just as we have this time of study together, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you might strengthen us, as your word says, in our inner being, Lord, through Christ, that, that Jesus would dwell in our hearts, that your word would dwell in our hearts, that, Lord, that he and the word would be rooted and grounded deep, Lord, in love and and God, together as we study your word, that we might comprehend the, the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of, uh, of the love of God in all that you have for us. And so we commit our time of study to you now. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment and say hello to someone? And then you can have a seat. Last week, we noted something together, and if you weren't here last week, it's okay. I think you, hopefully you would agree that, but we noted how the Bible in itself is like a, a giant 
storybook. And it's filled with these amazing pictures, and, and all of it, from the Old Testament to the New, it points us to Jesus Christ. And in many ways, I, I appreciate that. It, uh, it's, it's perfect for me. It's my speed. Uh, I'm one who uh, likes those pop-up books. You guys remember those pop-up books? And they had the little tab that you could pull, and some of the pages, you opened it, and it would you know, have this 3D picture of maybe something that you're reading. Uh, in many ways, the Bible is like that. It's God's pop-up book. There are these beautiful and amazing pictures that point us to Jesus Christ. And again, uh, it's not just true of the New Testament. It's also true of the Old Testament. There are places and people and events and, and things, material things, that we encounter in the Old Testament that serve as, well, the New Testament tells us they are types. They are foreshadows. They are uh, symbols, again, that all of it points us to the gospel, all of it points us to Jesus Christ. In fact, there's even a study or a name of that type of study, and it's called typology, you know, the study of types. And we talked last week about a few examples. We gave the example of Noah's Ark. I gave the example of Joshua uh, as a type of Christ. Well, we mentioned that, and then we're going to mention it again, because the writer of Hebrews is going to walk us through several more pictures and foreshadows and symbols uh, that are found in the Old Testament, that are found in the tabernacle, that are found in the priesthood, that are found in the, the sacrificial system. And, and, and all of it, again, it points us to the Lord. But before we get there, and we're going to get there soon, uh, before the writer brings us there, you remember he's currently developing this very important case, and very carefully, by the way, developing it. He wants to demonstrate to the reader, and as we read it today, it's for us as well, how the Old Testament priesthood and all that God had ordained for it and designed it, that all of it in its totality points us to a better priesthood. And, and namely, again, it's who Jesus Christ is, a facet of who the Lord is. And, and I think it's worth repeating so that we understand the context of why he's making this argument, why he's spending so much time on this point, because he's not done yet. We're going to have a couple more Sundays uh, talking about this a little bit more. And so remember the context, the, the, the original audience, the Jewish believers, they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we understand from the letter that they were experiencing a type of crisis, that they were having some difficulties there. And part of that was trying to reconcile what they had grown up with. I mean, everything that they knew to be true, the, the prescribed way in which they related to God through the priests and through the sacrifices through all of the Mosaic law, everything that governed every part of their life. And it was a way that God had given the, the children of Israel a way to be worshipped and a way to be honored, and it was through this system. And, and that's all they knew. That's what they grew up with, this physical priesthood, this um, the, the sacrificial system. And, and, and all part of that included the, you know, physically getting a, an offering, and, and, and an innocent animal, and bringing it to the, the priest. And, and there the priest would receive that offering and basically slaughter it, kill it. It was a, a, a graphic visual picture of, of what sin does, so the wages of sin is death, but also a picture of, uh, of a substitutionary sacrifice. An innocent life because you have sinned in your place now is being sacrificed. Of course, all of that still is a picture of Christ. Oh, it's not my notes, but um, for our translation, so you mean. Remember when, in that system, when you came before the priest and you brought your sacrifice, they didn't inspect you. <laughs> they, they didn't say, hey, okay, here, uh, walk this straight line. Let's see how your posture is. Uh, stand on this pad and let's see the pressure you make. Uh, let's see your teeth. Let's see your nails. All right, they didn't inspect you. They, they would inspect your offering. 
the offering had to be perfect. The offering had to be without blemish, without uh, marring. The offering had to pass the inspection test. And if the offering was good, well, guess what? Then you were good. And what a beautiful picture because Christ is our perfect, spotless, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. We, we don't come to the Lord based upon our perfection, our goodness. The Bible says it, it's as though our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. It, it's because of who Christ is. Amen? And so that, but, but that all of that, again, points to Christ, but that's the system that they were used to. Going to the temple on these prescribed days, they, they couldn't wear certain uh, items of clothing. They couldn't eat certain foods. And, and so there is this uh, strict observance of many laws that govern every part of their life. And that's how they grew up. That, that's, again, that's what they knew. And so the priest, the priesthood, the sacrificial system... It was daily, it was regular, and it was filled with sights and sounds and smells. It was very tangible, it was very sensory. And so now they're used to that, and now, as they've begin, begun their walk with the Lord at their new life in Christ by living by faith, and the message they received is that Christ is the Messiah. He's fulfilled all those things. And therefore, you are released from the previous religious system. That faith in Jesus Christ sets you free from following the letter of the law. From, from being confined by these religious confines. It's no longer uh, religion, if you will. It, it's relationship now that you have with God through Christ. And so it was brand new for them. It was different. They were learning as we're all learning. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him by faith in this life? And guess what? They were struggling as we struggle sometimes. And they were struggling with the temptation to go back to the old ways, to go back to the family culture, to go back to the tangible ceremonies. The, the comfort in one sense of having a priest who would serve as an intercessor and a mediator between them and God. Now that pressure to go back was exasperated by friends and family who still lived in the old ways, if you will who they were still very much part of that community and it was still around them and yet they had been saved, if you will, out of that and delivered out of that. And I know that many of you can relate. In many ways, this is your testimony. These are the things that you have dealt with. Well, the author wants to show them very clearly that now we are in Christ Jesus not to think of it as though we have abandoned God's prescribed priesthood, but, but rather the mindset should be we have graduated from that. That now we've come to the final installment of what all that God had been promising, all of what the priesthood represented, Christ is here now. And so we don't have to dwell in the types, in the shadows, in the pictures. The reality is here. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And that, that's really this, his whole thrust of his argument. To encourage them. To challenge them. And, and as great as the Levitical or the uh, Aaronic or you know, the priesthood from Aaron was, he's saying, listen, we have come to a better priesthood with Jesus Christ. And all of it was part of God's design from the beginning. And so here the author is writing to explain this to him. And, and, and if I may paraphrase, he says, I'll prove it to you. It, it's not just my words. Let, let's go, let's turn in your, your scrolls to the book of Genesis and let me give you a biblical uh, proof of what I'm talking about. Let's have a little bit of a Bible history lesson and let me explain what God was doing. And so that's what he did. He, take, he took them back to Genesis chapter 14, and that was our lesson last week, to this very intriguing person by the name of Mechizedek. And, and his point really is, is this, that 
that Mechizedek is a superior priest. Consider how great this man was. The fact that he was also a king. Remember his namesake. What a perfect namesake for his role. The king of righteousness is the king of peace. But he proceeds. He came before Aaron. He came before Moses. He came before the Levites. And Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi, but Jesus qualifies as a superior priest because he comes from the order of Melchizedek. Now, having said that already to us, I imagine that the author anticipates some questions. I imagine he anticipates some hands going up. Well, what about this? And isn't Jesus from Judah? And, you know, and all of these uh, kind of pushbacks. And so what does he do? He wants to walk them through basically a biblical construct with hoping that they're going to follow his logical conclusions. Remember, he's going to kind of stack his, his, um, his reasons on top of each other just to build this argument. And last week, I, I, I kind of gave an illustration of it's like when we go to the beach and going into the deeper waters, the the writer wants to bring us into the deeper theological waters. And I trust that we'll be able to follow as the Spirit leads us and allows us to understand, allows us to see, allows us to apply the things that, you know, obviously meant a lot for the earlier believers, but it means something for us today. So verse 4, we draw our attention back to there. Now consider how great this man was. All right, in what way? to whom even the patriarch Abraham, and everybody would know who Abraham was, that even Abraham gave this, and I don't mean to be irreverent, just to be me, I guess, you know, this dude, this vato, consider how great Mechizedek was, that Abraham, even as great as Abraham was, gave Mechizedek a tithe, a tenth, of all of the spoils that he brought back. And so here it's, it's, Again, this proof that the writer is wanting the reader to consider. Consider my argument. Consider how great Mechizeldeck was. This biblical proof, not just me saying so, not just my hypothesis, but a biblical example of his superior identity than even of Abraham. Which, that would be almost on the border of fighting words for a devout Jew because of what they thought of Abraham, how they revered Abraham. And, and, and let me just pause. It's almost an aside, but I think it's an important one. The invitation the Holy Spirit is giving us is to think deeply and think critically about what I'm going to say. And, and that in itself is a great principle for us. You know, God wants us as believers in Jesus Christ to engage our brains when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to reading the Word and understanding the Word, we have to understand that our faith is not merely an academic exercise of accepting facts and data, but at the same time, it is intellectual. At the same time, we are charged with worship the Lord and love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your soul and all of your mind. Remember Paul writes to the believers in Rome and he says, we don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world around us, but, but be transformed. And how do we be transformed? Well, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may know what the will of God is. And how do we know the will of God? Well, we know it from the Word of God as the Spirit of God reveals it to us. And so we are invited, come let us reason, God would say through Isaiah, to engage our brains. Faith in Christ is not a leap in the dark. It's a, it, it, you know, it's a step into the light. And gang, I, I, I trust that you know this. I'm just saying something that you know. The Scriptures challenge us to think critically and deeply about the things of God. Are there elements that we take by faith? Of course. And God is greater than us. God is higher than our thinking. There's elements where 
because he is infinite and we are finite, we're, we're not going to be able to understand the totality of the Lord. That's just part of it. But along with that, though, right, we're not called just to check our brains at the door. But rather, we, are, we have been invited to examine, to consider, to scrutinize, to ask, to learn. With honest intentions, if I can add that. And it's so important for us today. So important for, along with that, for us to equip especially not only ourselves, but the next generation. That they would understand how to think critically and deeply. And, and not just, I mean, we, we want to be able to tell them truth, but for them to be able to analyze that truth to think about what they believe and why they believe it, and, and then to articulate, then why, why do we believe this? So that we can trust the Scriptures. You know, I, I, I love this scene in the New Testament where, where Thomas is in the upper room. You know, Jesus is not afraid of our questions or our doubts. I think if Jesus was speaking in today's vernacular, he would say, bring it. Because remember when he appears in the upper room there on the day of the resurrection, um, Thomas is missing. Right? He ditched church. And the Lord shows up, and God ministers to them. And, the, and later on, we, they find Thomas, and they're like, my paraphrase, bro, you missed it. Church was awesome. Jesus showed up. It was incredible. Right? The whole lesson, don't ditch church. That's the whole point of that. No, just so Thomas comes the next week, and sure enough, Jesus shows up. And you remember the exchange in John 20? And, and Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, you don't, you don't have to doubt anymore. Go ahead, stick your finger. Go ahead, touch my side. And stop doubting but believe. And I, and I love that scene. I feel like the Lord just invites all of us in the same way. It's okay. Ask the questions, probe, analyze Think critically, think deeply. And here the writer is, is inviting us to do the same thing. Consider, consider my argument. Consider how great Mekeseldek was. Think through with my construct critically. And he's going to bring us to several points. Now he tells us his whole main idea. What's the big drum he's trying to, to hit, the target he's trying to hit? Well, he tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, my, our main point is this. Jesus is our high priest. He tells us plainly. But before he gets there, he's going to give us three points as proof of Mekeseldek's superiority. Consider these things. So the first is the fact that Mekeseldek received a tithe from Abraham. That's the first one. Consider how Abraham gave Mekeseldek a tithe. Number two, consider the fact that it was Mekeseldek who then blessed Abraham. And then number three, which he doesn't, he hints at in verse eight, and he'll unpack later for us, not until chapter, or verses 23 and 20 through 28, is the fact that Mekizeldek's priesthood was eternal, and that the Levitical one was, well, temporal, is mortal. And so the first point he wants them to consider in his argument of how Mekizeldek is greater is the fact that Abraham gave him a tithe. And so again, remember for a devout Jew, Abraham was their champion. Anybody get to watch the opening of the Olympics the other day? I, I post on my Facebook. I, I know there's a lot of controversy. And I, but for me, I'm still, I'm still intrigued. I'm still excited for it. Still rooting for... Well, for me, I'm rooting for America and Japan. So, you know, right? we have two flags, right? But we, we get that, right? We, we, we you know, there are... They're, those are our, if you will, our champions that represent our countries, or perhaps our favorite sport, and so then you'll change, you know, go Brazil or whatever, right? So. In many ways, Abraham was their champion, if you will. That's who represented their identity. That's who represented their, their nation. He was the founding forefather of their national identity. 
And so they, they gladly embraced the, the identity of the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. And often that's, that's the card they pulled out. That's the ID that they would uh, you know, default to anytime, especially when there's an engagement with the Lord about different things. In John chapter 8, Jesus gives us powerful statements of affirming how he is the Savior. His graciousness to the woman who was you know, caught in adultery. And then from there, he launches into how he is the light of the world. And he begins to make these, these um, lofty statements, and rightly so, he's the Lord, of how the Father has sent him to set the people free, to be free from their sins, to be free from the law. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are listening to this, and, they're, and they basically say, Psh, we're not in slavery, we're not in bondage, we've never been. And they pull out their ID cards, dependents of Abraham. And, and they make this claim, we're not slaves to anyone. Look at our ID card. Child of Abraham right here. And Jesus kind of fires back and basically says, yeah, you, you think because you can trace your, your family lineage back to Abraham, because you did the Ancestry.com and you got the paper that says you're related to Abraham, that you think you got a free ticket to heaven. And he kind of drops something heavy on them. He's like, you don't. In fact, the way that you're in behaving, I would say your dad's the devil. Shocking words for them. And then he goes on to say, because if you really believed Abraham, then you would believe me. And then he would go on to say, and in fact, I existed before Abraham. And at that, that's when they you know, just went crazy. But my point being is that, that, man, Abraham was their guy. That was their national identity. He is the most, one of the most honored figures of their nation and faith. And so the author comes in and says, now consider this. Consider how great Mechizeldek was, as great as our forefather was, the patriarch of our nation was, he paid a tithe to Mechizeldek. And they, they understood who pays tithes to who. And so he affirms what they already know in verse 5. Indeed, it's those who are the sons of Levi who are the priesthood, they received the tithes from the people. They had this commandment according to God's law. That was how he designed it. They received it from the rest of the brethren. And so he kind of goes back again, has a little bit of review. God designed this system so that the, this one tribe of 12, the tribe of Levi, that they were... Um, especially appointed, if we can call it that. They, remember, that family was called out special. And God says, you're going to be uh, a special tribe to me. I'm going to give you one special job. And, and this is your job for all of your days. You're going to serve as priests and servants before me and for the people. For the rest of the families, that's your job. And so, if you were born in the Levi tribe, your genes decided your job. You couldn't race camels, you couldn't make chariots, you couldn't fish for a living. You became a priest and you had priestly duties. You couldn't come one day and say, maybe I'm not meant for these duties. Cooking duty, dead guy duty, you couldn't say that. You were destined for priestly duties. And so one of the ways that God provided for the Levites was this system of support through the tithes and offerings. The, the rest of the families would bring uh, these different types of offerings to the tabernacle, then later to the temple. And it was an act of worship, but it was also an act of obedience. It provided kind of a multifold lesson, a lesson of, well, of redemption, as they would watch this innocent animal be sacrificed because of their stupidity, their sins. But also, it provided a lesson of trusting the Lord to provide. Those animals were valuable. 
Again, you weren't giving the, the yuckiest one, you gave the best. And, and when you had crops, you didn't give the last of your crops, you gave the first of your crops. And so there was a huge lesson of trusting the Lord and honoring God. It was all built into this. And it, and, and it, and it, it also provided practically for the, the material things of the tabernacle and the temple and the, the bread that was to be baked and the materials that were needed. But also it provided for the priesthood. It was a source of a type of income. It provided support for them so they could eat, they had to have a meal, they could buy diapers, you know, they could uh, do the things that they needed for their daily life. And so basically, God's spiritual servants were supported by the generosity and the obedience of the rest of the families. And this enabled them to be fully dedicated to the work that God had called them especially to. And by the way, in many ways, that's the model of you know, what we follow as a church today. That, that giving uh, is an act of worship for us. That when we give unto the Lord, there's a multifold lesson there of trusting God, of honoring God, of worshiping the Lord, but also you know, not trusting in our paychecks and mammon. And it's also a way that God then uses those resources to support the work that He's doing. And so, you know, it's through the generosity and I'd add this term, the, the willful obedience of church members by when we give a portion, when we tithe from what God has provided for us in the form of tithes and offerings that, well, it enables you know, us to pay for the material needs of the building and VBS and diapers in the nursery and the various ministries that God has directed us to do and the missionaries that we support. And included in that, it provides for myself and my family and a staff for us to, you know, to have the privilege to, to be fully dedicated to serve, well, the rest of the families. That's what we get to do for the Lord. And by the way, if I can say this, I, I want to assure you that's not something we take lightly. It's a humbling privilege. It's a high honor. We seek to honor the Lord in faithful service to you all. But the point that the author is making here is that God's ordained priests received the tithes from the rest of the family. And, and even though all of them were equal as sons of Abraham, but when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, it meant something different. And he's going to explain verse 6. Actually, let's take a big chunk, 6 through 10. He says, okay, consider how great Melchizedek was, the fact that he received tithes from Abraham. He lays out, everyone knows the base law. He says, but, here's a contrast, he's, he whose genealogy is not derived from them, and so Melchizedek, who's not from Levi, who's not from Aaron, received tithes from Abraham. And then Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. He says, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he's receiving them, of whom it's witnessed that he, that's speaking of Melchizedek, that he lives. And the idea is that he's eternal. Mortal men and eternal. That's the contrast. And then again, he says this kind of interesting thing, that even Levi who receives tithes, in one sense, paid tithes, even before he's born, through Abraham, so to speak, because he's still in Abraham's loins. All right, hopefully you're tracking. I don't want to have to explain what loins are. Right? <laughs> Again, the, he's walking through this biblical, and I, I think it's a logical construct. Mechizedek, who's not part of the Levites, received a tithe from Abraham. All right, we got it. Abraham honored God by giving a tenth of what God enabled him to do, have that victory as he got his nephew Lot and that family back and all of the spoils. Remember, he won uh, 
the victory against the four kings of the north. And he came and he honors the Lord through this other priest who's not part of the Levite line. And then he adds this interesting thought. He says, Levi, who is the forefather of the priesthood, those are the ones who receive the tithes, although they're mortal in one sense, through Abraham, because Abraham did that. In one sense, the priesthood of Levi even paid tithes to Melchizedek too, as Abraham did. And see, Abraham himself was the, I think the term is uh, uh, progenitor, right? Like he's the forefather of the Levites, who, by the way, wouldn't come until about a thousand years later. And so even before Levi was born, even before the tribe existed, before, before all of the tribes existed, they were, if you will, in Abraham's loins. We might say, they, you know, before they were a twinkle in Abraham's eye. And so here, the author wants to prove, again, how great Melchizedek is, that he's greater than Aaron, but in fact, he takes his argument even one level higher. He says, here's how I'm going to prove to you that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Melchizedek's actually even greater than Abraham. Like the way that he proves that he's greater than the Aaronic priesthood is to prove that he's greater than Abraham. You guys tracking? All right. And the proof wasn't just who paid tithes to who. He adds to the argument, guess who blessed who? Mechizedek was greater because he blessed Abraham. Now today, most of us, I don't think we've, I will speak for myself, I don't think too much about this. Like who blesses who? You know, who sneezes and who blesses who? We, you know, we bless each other. Good morning, God bless you. But remember again, in their culture, in the Bible times, it was a big deal to receive a blessing. It was it was inherent in their culture. It was super important. You wanted a blessing from, from your dad or from your grandfather or from a, a, a patriarchal figure. That was a big deal. It wasn't a light thing. And we have all these uh, wonderful accounts of it. You might remember, remember the account with Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob? Jacob essentially just tricks his brother. Now, they have their issues, like his, remember his brother was like, yeah, I don't care about my birthright, just give me a bowl of some frijoles and you can have, you know, my birthright. But Jacob tricked, not only his brother, he tricked his dad. And he goes in and, and Isaac, who's their dad, ends up giving Jacob, the younger one, basically the firstborn's blessing. And he received this blessing. Now, when Esau finds out, right, he's pretty, he's pretty livid. And it happens in the tent with their dad. And, and Isaac's like, sorry, I already gave it away. And, and when I read that, I think, who cares? Why can't you just say, well, you know what? Your brother tricked us. Man, he got me good. My mouth was open. Let's go ahead. We'll pray for you, and I'll renounce that one. And, and he basically says, I already gave it away. It's in Genesis 27, by the way. And so it's, it's a picture of a, for us to, you know, an insight, like, look how important that was. And so blessings that were then received were given by the fathers and grandfathers, bestowed upon the children and grandchildren of the families. And it was a big deal. And I know in some cultures, it, it's a big deal. It's very important. Again, the idea here is that it's the, it's the greater that blesses the lesser. The God would bless a nation. And then Aaron, remember, even Aaron blesses the nation. In Numbers chapter 6, it's this beautiful, we call it the Aaronic blessing, where he stands before the nation and he, and, he, and he says, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Now, that's a beautiful blessing. The people received that because Aaron was the high priest, and God had directed him to do that. Can we understand a little bit? I think there are some 
in some religious circles, people who will go to great lengths, make a lot of sacrifices to go somewhere or stand in line for a long time to receive a blessing from you know, a priest, a shaman. Sometimes you, you, know, you see it on TV, the Pope or others. And so the author is making the point to say that it wasn't Abraham that blessed Mechizedek. Abraham gave Mechizedek a tithe, and then Mechizedek blessed Abraham. The, the lesser is blessed by the greater. He uses the word blessed by the better. And so he's, he's building this argument. And then he goes on, verse 11. He says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the pre- people received the law. Now he's going to make a point and he's going to form it into a question. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Mechizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? He says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, which no man has officiated at the altar. And then I want you to notice the words he uses. For it's evident that our Lord rose from Judah, of the tribe of which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. In verse 15, then he says, yet it's even more evident that in the likeness of Mechizedek there came another priest. I'll pause there for a second. The, the author moves us into deeper doctrinal waters. He's going to start making, well, he's going to make, I should say, a, not surprising, what's the word I want to use? Shocking, startling, he's going to, He's going to come to a conclusion that's going to have a little bit of, uh, of like a, what'd you say? Kind of a reaction. I don't know how that translates in Japanese. Maji? You know, nande? He wants, again, he wants them to think, think through this with me. I'm, I'm going to make this argument, and again, the reason is, okay, who cares? What, what are the implications of the information? And that's where he's going to bring us to. So what? What are the implications of what I'm trying to tell you? And so he presents his point as a question. If that is true, if, if Mechizedek is greater than even Abraham, therefore he's greater than Aaron, and Jesus came from that order, then he says, why was it necessary? It, if we could be perfect, if if a right standing was possible for any of us to be made right before God through the original system with Aaron and the Levites as priest, why would God then send a different new one who came in the likeness of Mechizedek? Why would the Lord do that? If the Old Testament system was the permanent solution, and that's how they were supposed to operate from forever, why would God send a new priest? who wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He's going to answer his own question. The the answer to his question is, God sent a new priest, verse 12. God sending a new priest tells us that the old system wasn't a permanent solution. It is the indicator of that. It It is the sign of that. Because a change of the priesthood thus must mean there has been a change of the law. So in my mind's eye, I imagine him saying, listen, I've been telling you guys about Jesus, whom you have followed by faith. And I want to let you know that though you're tempted to go back to the old priesthood, Christ is our better priest. He is our high priest. And it's not just me who's saying this. God ordained this. God planned this. And he says, and I know that you know that Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. So I know that you have this question, well, how can he be a high priest if he didn't come from Aaron's line? Because we know he came from the tribe of Judah. 
He says it's evident. The idea is it's obvious. He came from the tribe of Judah. And we all know that, that God never prescribed for anybody from Judah's tribe to be able to have a job of the priesthood. Now he's already established, well, Jesus qualifies as a priest because he is a man. And God would pick from man, not from angels, not from anywhere else, to be a priest. And so Jesus had to then come in the likeness of man. That's a qualification. We can, that's satisfied. Then people say, oh, but he's not from Levi. He's not from Levi. And he would say, okay, yeah, that's a good point. But he's not disqualified, though. He's still qualified, even though he's not from Levi, because he's from, he's from Mechizedek. And he has a history lesson. Don't you remember? Mechizedek's legitimate. He's legit. God put him in there. He's still biblical. And he makes the next argument say it should be far more evident. And I think, you know, almost it would be like, if you really read your Bibles, wink, wink. It should be far more evident, super obvious, than that Jesus qualifies. And in fact, not only does he qualify, he's overqualified. He's superior in his priesthood, just like Melchizedek was superior in his. And the argument now is, listen, it's not a family tree requirement. How does Jesus qualify? Here's the third argument. It's not a requirement of the family tree he qualifies because he's resurrected. Because he died on a tree. And he rose again. Because he is eternal. He lives forever. All the other priesthood, and he's going to develop this argument later, they're mortal. They come and they live, they serve, and guess what? They die. But Christ didn't. You know, my, my son Nehemiah... Uh, is applying for a job to wait tables. And so the restaurant asked him to put together a resume. Now, some of you go to my son, Nehemiah, he, he's never had a job, a paid job before in his life. You know, we put him to work at the house and he serves here at the church and helps out. But So he's trying to fill out this resume and, it, and it's one of those just fill in, you know, the, there's prompts and he gets to the part where it says skills and qualifications. And he turns to me and says, Dad, what, what are my skills? And I'm like, hmm. You could put nunchuck skills and bow hunting skills and computer hacking skills. And I'm like, I, you're a pretty good skateboarder and you play the guitar, but I, I don't know if those are going to be good for waiting tables, you know. I'm like, ah, oh, but you're pretty patient and you listen well and and we can put these kind of skills, you know, good listener and patient. I'm like, you know, if you, if you have the right skills, if you have the right qualifications for what they're looking for, then, you're, you know, most likely you can get the job. Jesus, if you will, on the uh, application for high, eternal high priest, he doesn't put, because I, I qualify because I'm from Levi. He, does, he doesn't put that, and he can't put that. What he puts is, or what we understand is, Jesus qualifies his eternal high priest because he's eternal. <laughs> he lives forever. And the very fact that he lives forever, just like the royal order of Melchizedek, no one else has the title of king and priest. It was not allowed under the Mosaic law, be it Jesus is our king and our priest. And... and what the writer does for us then, several times he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 4, where God declares, and you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's speaking about the Messiah. And the idea here is that nobody else then is qualified to fill that job. It, the tribe of Aaron couldn't fill that job because they are disqualified by the fact that they're mortal. No one else can fill the job. Jesus perfectly fulfills what the law required. And by the way, I'll add this, every point of it. He just happens to be making a very complex, deeper argument on this facet of Christ. 
And so he, he asks the question, if the Old Testament and the way that God designed it was good enough, why, why did a new priest have to come? And hopefully the answer we'll come, same conclusion we'll come to is because it wasn't good enough. There's something, something wasn't completed in what God had originally said. And so here, that's where he goes next. He says, he testifies, verse 17, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, verse 18, for on the one hand, on, on one point, there is an annulling of the former commandment. It's a way he's describing the Mosaic law. There's an annulling of what God had done before. Why? Notice, this, this is where the words can become a little bit fighting words, because it was weak and it was unprofitable. The law made nothing perfect. Like if, if, the, if the original audience didn't get a little stirred up when, he, when they heard that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, they're going to get a little stirred up when, when the writer says, guess what, the law is unprofitable. It would be a huge, uh, you know, like paradigm shift for them. What are you talking about? That's what we grew up with. That's all I've ever known. And again, they're arguing, and a right argument would be that, are you saying that what God gave us isn't good? Now the rest of chapter 7 and all of 8 and, and 9 and 10, by the way, <laughs> he'll, he'll explain all of it. Because it does go a little deep. He says, okay, on one hand it's this, but on the, <clears throat> on the other hand, verse 19, another point though is, there is then the bringing because that was annulled, because that was then set aside, it made way for then something else, and he describes the something else as a better, a better hope. And then later on, he's going to describe it as a better covenant and a better sacrifice and a better priest. I mean, that word in the book of Hebrews shows up, greater and better. Jesus is better. And what, what, does it, uh, what does it produce then? What does it uh, enable us to do? Well, to draw near to God. That we can draw near to the Lord. All right. He answers his own question. If we could be made right with God through what he originally set up, why then did Jesus have to come? Why does the new priest have to come? And the answer is because he he wanted to usher in a new covenant, a better covenant. The logical question, I think, then would be, okay, what was wrong with the first one then? Didn't God design that? Didn't God institute that? Didn't God give that to Moses and told him, make sure you write this down, make sure that we follow this? He gave it to our, our forefathers. This is something we were supposed to do. All of the prescriptions. And the answer is, yeah, he did. But the argument is, he gave it as a temporary prescription. He did give it, but it was, by design, it's designed to be temporary. It's designed to be the beta. It's designed, designed to be just the, 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 you know, the pre-released. It's just a temporary model a placeholder until Christ came. Yes, it served a great purpose. But understand, it was not meant to be the, the final product. It's not meant to be the final process in which we can then ultimately and, and, and forever draw near to God. And so the writer gives this quick pro and con to explain that. He says, listen, on one hand, you know, we use that phrase today, right? In contrast, on this hand and in this hand. And then he calls the, the Mosaic law the, the former commandment. Like even the way that it's phrased, the idea is that it was the, it's the older thing. It's the previous thing. And then he says it's annulled by annulling of it. That, that term annulled is a legal term. It's the idea that, that something was valid, and guess what? It's no longer valid. It's been legally declared void. 
It, it had an existence, it had a time frame, but it's expired, and now it's no longer valid. Something else has come. And the author uses those terminologies to describe the old covenant, the old system. And then he says, because it's weak, because of its weakness, it's unprofitable, it made nothing perfect. We have to understand this in context too, though. The writer is not disparaging God's law. The, the writer isn't, you know, on the face of it, it can seem as though it's contradicting. He's not contradicting Scripture. He's, I, I would say, he's expounding it for us. He's elaborating. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Or making wise the simple, excuse me. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The, the law of God, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all of it, it reveals in one sense, it's a reflection of who God is, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the standard of God. But at the same time, it also reveals the imperfection of man. That God is holy and we are not. It is the standard in which nobody can achieve. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so not only is it descriptive, but the law was prescriptive. What do you do then when you fall short? Oh, well, you're done. No, it gave a, it gave a means in which then we could be right with God. But in many ways, it's like a mirror. It shows us our reality. It, it shows us then our imperfections. Anybody have those mirrors that has like five times or, ten, or 20 times magnification? Like Christy has one of those. I don't like to look at that thing. I'm like, whoa. Right? Shows all your pores and all your blemishes. And I, I'm just happy to look in the regular mirror with my blurred vision. I look good today, you know. <laughs> the mirror reflects reality. You can see all the things like, whoa, I got these hairs growing here and this thing's happening and all your imperfections. But none of us can take the mirror and then start rubbing in our face, right? Like, oh, I'm going to be cleared today. It doesn't clear you of your imperfections. It doesn't make your, those things go away. It just simply reveals. It reflects. give you another analogy. The speed limit sign. The speed limit sign declares what the law is. It declares the limit of the law. But what a speed limit sign cannot do, it cannot make you obey the law. In that sense, it is weak. In that sense, the mirror is weak. It's profitlessless. It, pro it can't profit you. It, it can only show you, but it can't fix you. It has no power to, to make you better, just as the speed limit sign has no power to make you drive within the limit. It only tells you what the limit is. It only shows you the reality, and then if you break it, it shows you that you broke it. See, that is the purpose of the law. It's perfect. It declares what God desires, who the Lord is. It shows us what is right and what is wrong, but it can't make you do what is right. but it gives us a prescription of what to do when we are wrong, when the law is broken. And what we'll discover in the next chapter is, he gets into detail of it, it's ineffective. The prescription is ineffective. You constantly have to do it because we're constantly sinning. And God knew that, by the way. It's temporary. And so it is weak in the sense that it doesn't produce godliness. It doesn't produce purity. And by the way, that is why I personally believe 
we can never legislate morality or integrity. Laws don't make people do the right thing. And by the way, as another aside, I do find it interesting that there's, some, there's still some groups that you encounter that promote the idea that even as Christians, we still have to live by certain Mosaic laws. They'll reach back into the Old Testament and say, we still need to do this. That we still need to honor the Lord on a certain day. We still need to abstain from certain foods or certain practices. And we cannot and can and we should and should not do some of these Levitical things. Gang, I, I want to say this in love. I understand the argument, but, but it's, it's wrong. It's an appeal to the flesh. And there's a part of me that understands because there is a part of me that likes to live by rules, especially when other people live by rules. And there's a part of me that likes to measure my goodness and my holiness by how well I'm living. But that's not the gospel at all. Our time doesn't permit. Read Romans and read Colossians and read Galatians. I mean, so much of what Paul combated in the early church was this wrong notion that these people started to come in and he called them Judaizers. And they, start, they began to say, listen, it's great that you love Jesus, you want to follow Jesus, but you still have to do these things. And Paul would say, no, no you don't. Listen, if you choose to do something or not do something as a personal conviction, praise the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. Praise God. You're free to do or not do that as the Lord leads you. But be very careful when, when, when you, and I'll include myself, when we begin to place our convictions of practice on others as though it's a commandment of the Lord. Paul says to the Galatians, and he asks this question, are, first of all, he says, who's bewitched you? Then he says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit that you think now you're going to be made perfect by the flesh, by following the, the letter of the law? And so I want to say this in love. Church family, we need to be very careful because I have found that just like in the first century, there are, if you will, modern day Judaizers floating around today who come in with persuasive words that want to appeal to your intellect and appeal to the flesh and a good desire. We want to be godly. We want to be holy. And they will tell you, well, you can do that. You can achieve that by following the Old Testament. The passage before us tells us, no, living that way makes nobody perfect. It is weak. It is unprofitable. What does it accomplish for us? It shows us that it will never work, and here's what it does show us. Because it's flawed, well, I'll say it this way. The reason the system is flawed is because we're flawed. But then we realize we need something better then. And so then it gives way. It brings in. It opens the curtain for a better hope. And the better hope is Jesus Christ. It's the new covenant. It's the new promise. It's, it's the better deal. What the law could not do, Jesus did. And he then develops that argument in the rest of where the balance of chapter 7 goes. Gang, we do not need to bring continual sacrifices to draw near to God. We don't need a priest to inspect our offering. We don't need to go and ceremonially wash and be clean Make sure you're okay before you come before the Lord. You, need to make sure, you don't need to make sure you're eating the right things. But wait till sundown on Friday before you can worship. See, all of that was a foreshadow of Christ to come. And because Jesus has come, here, here's the point. You can be comforted and confident because Christ is the only high priest we will ever need to draw near to God. Amen? All right. I went long. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I, I pray you'd help us. There's, there's some complexity to what the writer is saying, but God, I, I trust that we'll be able to digest it. 
and Lord, it will nourish our soul. It will be a great reminder of the treasure we have in Jesus Christ, the freedom we have in Jesus Christ, the relationship we have in Jesus Christ. And God, that we would not then go back to anything else, but to live in that freedom, to rejoice in that freedom, and to worship and to serve in that freedom. Father, thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. As always, I pray you're encouraged and challenged.